Welcome to Feeling It, a podcast where we discuss TV, movies, pop culture, and whether or not we are feeling it. If this is your first time joining us, welcome to the show. And here we go. Come on, walk and talk. Alright, here we go. You guys want to hear something neat? It's showtime! Hold your ears, folks. Here we go! See what you can do now. Take your position. Alright, ladies, buckle up. Let's do this. Hold on to your butts. Seriously? Listen to me very, very carefully. Hey, it's me again. Eat him up. Enjoy. Days of Future Past last night, and that's like all I can think about right oh, now. So I have to switch my different mind back franchise. Get it back in gear, man. I freaking love Days of Future Past. That's a fantastic movie. I will say, I never saw it, but after seeing the Apocalypse trailer for the first time, now I'm like, okay. Which I now, call, I, <laughs> I refer to as uh, X Men Apocalypse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. That's pretty great. When you typed that earlier, I didn't get it. I'm so glad I got to hear it pronounced phonetically. <laughs> yeah, good. You're, you're just like, oh, he spelled that really weird. <laughs> yeah. Is that how you spell apocalypse? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hello, everybody. I am so excited about this week. Uh, we are going to be talking uh, about what we're feeling this week and skipping right past the news section to talk unspoiled and then completely spoiled glee about marvel's captain america civil war uh, glee might be a strong word <laughs> oh oh we'll see we we'll will see. find out spoilers spoilers <laughs> my own bias is showing through so strap in i'm way too excited about this all right so this week in addition to introducing yourself what was your favorite cereal growing up sandra i'm sandra omstutz and i'm a social media manager in nashville tennessee and when on the rare occasions i was allowed to eat it cocoa pebbles was my jam my name is Brent Bailey. I work in tech in Chicago, Illinois, and I write about faith and pop culture online. And when I was growing up, I ate a ton of peanut butter Captain Crunch. Didn't that tear your mouth up? Uh, <laughs> yes. I've, it's, uh, my taste buds have been crushed yeah. ever since. <laughs> um, I'm Lucas Wright. I'm a designer in the Bay Area. And growing up, my favorite cereal was the lamest cereal, which is Honey Nut Cheerios. But I was into it. It's a classic. I still eat it to this day. See, that's what separates it from so many of the other ones. I'm Lawson Soward. I'm an art director at an ad agency in Nashville, Tennessee. And my favorite breakfast cereal growing up was Lucky Charms. Felt like the perfect mix of sweet and nutritious, but that was all a joke. It was all sweet. It was and all I don't sweet. drink it anymore. Uh, all right. So let's go around and talk about what we're feeling this week. Sandra, what are you feeling, buddy? Okay, guys. I am, in general, a big lover of reality TV. I love My Real Housewives. I love My Big Brother, Jersey Shore. But the crown jewel for me of all reality TV is Keeping Up with the Kardashians. And this week was the premiere of season 12 of Keeping Up with the Kardashians. We've had 10 years, guys, of this <laughs> glorious TV show. And I'm so glad it's back in my life. The decade of Kim. Right. Um... So I totally get that they're very easy to hate and easy to make fun of. Um, I'm not here to try to convince anyone that doesn't already love the Kardashians to, like, go watch it because it's going to change your life. Although it could. I'm not saying it couldn't do that. <laughs> it won't. <laughs> um, Lucas will say it. <laughs> Y'all, I have so much fun watching this show. And in addition to how fun and entertaining I think the show is... I find the relationships on this show and their lifestyles so fascinating. I could talk for hours and hours about Kardashians, so I will try to keep this brief. Um, 
what I really loved about this week's episode is that the premiere episodes of Kardashians are always one of the best episodes of the season because we've missed them and they're back. So it's really exciting to see them. Also, the end of the episode always has a preview for the season to come. And it's like the juiciest bits of all the season that gets you like really psyched and revved up. Um, This episode in particular was great because it had a lot of like my favorite recurring bits from the Kardashian show. Those include family members making fun of each other, photo shoots, new hairstyles, um, old family fights that have happened countless times being picked up and rehashed again, mention of Kim's 72-day marriage, um, (laughs) buying and decorating new mansions, all things I just, I love watching and they do it they'll do those things multiple times each season every season and i never get sick of it okay i'll say my wife Lindsay watches this show and adores it and that's one thing that i think is so interesting about this show compared to other television that i watch like scripted television is when you have a scripted tv show maybe not everything is filmed or gone through post or editing by the end of it but with this show, it's like, no, we can cut out all the stuff. And on episode one, on the premiere, we can show you what you're in for for this whole year. Yeah. That's... Because it's all happened. Yeah. It's all... <laughs> it's all been all over tabloids already. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, this show has always just been so special. I'm so fully in the Kardashian world. I love keeping track on all these people. I follow all of them on Snapchat. I watch their Snap stories every single day. Um I bought Kim's selfie book. I'm I'm committed, guys. <laughs> um, but even though we know what's happening in the tabloids and like we know all the details of their lives and we're watching them on social media every day, the show still does such a great job of giving us moments that we had no idea existed. Um, these behind-the-scenes moments that aren't on social media, that aren't in the tabloids, that we get to see like really up close and personal, even if it's kind of a buffered version of what those moments actually were. Um, One of the big storylines that apparently is going to be happening this season is the relationship between Rob Kardashian, who is back on the show. (laughs) The long absence of Rob (laughs) is over. I'm so excited to have him back. Um, But it's a relationship between Rob Kardashian and his now fiance and as we found out yesterday, soon to be mother of his child. Baby mama. Yep. Um, it Black China. So <laughs> one of like a forty-eight-year-old dad at my company yesterday walked up to us and was like, Are y'all seated? Cause remain seated because <laughs> Black China is pregnant. And like I'm surrounded by all these guys like covered in tattoos. This is like art directors, and they're like couldn't give less of a shit but like it was so funny that <laughs> oh. this dad is like so into it like guys it's happening i give so much of a shit yes yes <laughs> so much <laughs> um one of the reasons i'm so excited about this is because you know i truly do view the kardashians as like america's version of the royal family and one of the oh. things i'm so <laughs> oh boy <laughs> maybe how we should all take a second to say how much we love sandra despite <laughs> okay <laughs> Y'all, I'm like a duck. This is all a shedding off my back. I don't give a fuck. Because, and I will stand by that comparison. Because the royal family is not known for any particular talents or, like, 
they're only there because they're really born into that wealth and that family. And I think, but we, the, but people still love to follow all of their drama and like relationships anyway. And I think it's the exact same thing here. That's fair. Um, but I'm excited because Black China being pregnant means the Kardashian name will live on. Because oh all Rob is the only son in that family. Oh we have an heir. Yes. <laughs> Guys, the Kardashian name is not dead. And I'm excited about this. So, um, yeah. So anyway, one of the big storylines for the season to come is the tension between Rob and the rest of his family because of this relationship. Because Black China has a tense history with a lot of the sisters. Um, I'm also excited because in the preview, a lot of the men that are related or in the lives of these major women are apparently going to be a lot more heavily featured in the season than they normally are. Kanye seems to be making a lot more appearances. So does Tyga. Um, Scott Disick is making appearances. So I'm overall just really excited. I think it's going to be the best season yet in a series that has always entertained me. All right. If, Anyone has anything kind to say? Say it now, and if not, we can move <laughs> on. Y'all are Brent. the worst. Y'all. Are <laughs> no, I totally agree. Okay, I want to say something nice about the Kardashians. You don't have to. I'm not forcing you to say anything nice. No, they don't need you're you to not. say anything you're nice not. about them. I want to do yeah. this because I, I like imp- empathing the like vibe among the four of us, and I just want to say I think there's so much to be said in this culture where there's just people are grasping for celebrity. They're grasping for people that they can like tear apart and put all over tabloids. There's really something to be said for the way the Kardashians have handled everything in owning the narrative. Because I think that's been so missing from so much of uh, our past like celebrity uh, obsession and everything is these people get torn apart. And I think people, the Kardashians still get you know torn apart pretty regularly by tabloids and stuff. But the fact that they have this reality show and they're trying to be like, look, you're obviously going to read all this shit about us, but here's our vantage point. Here's the way that we edit, that we see the story that we're putting forward, um, showing some of their flaws, but also showing a lot of like the love that exists between that family. I, I can admire that from afar without <laughs> desiring to watch it. Um, but yeah, I think that's really cool. And I think that there, I love the empowerment in that. Yeah, well, and I will also say, today will not be the day where I have this conversation, but I think there's also really interesting conversations to be had about the the way gender roles are reversed in that show, and the way gender is played out and exaggerated, and then also really, like, there's some really interesting things that are being done on that show. Anyway... That's enough for me and my <laughs> obsession today. <laughs> All right, Brent, what are you feeling this week, my friend? Tell us about something classy. Okay. <laughs> <That's good. laughs> okay. <laughs> Episode two, and I'm being attacked. <laughs> Nothing but love. <laughs> this week I'm feeling the Van Gogh Bedrooms exhibit at the Art Institute of Chicago. Lucas wasn't being literal there. You can do your real pick, Brent. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Brent had to pick the classiest thing. I know, right? I picked Kardashians. <laughs> well, it's kind of exciting that there's been a bunch of buzz around the city and even on social media about people rushing to get to the, this exhibit. It's gotten a ton of buzz and some really great reviews. They've been getting record numbers of people attending it. Um, so yesterday I went again, this was my second time to, uh, visit the Van Gogh Bedrooms exhibit. And I should say up front that I am like the definition of a novice when it comes to engaging visual art in terms of painting and sculpture. 
my roommate and I got a household membership to the Art Institute, and I've gone a few times. It's usually one of the first places I'll take people uh, who come to visit Chicago. It's an outstanding museum. You can just get lost there for hours and hours and hours. Um, but I connected with this exhibit, the Van Gogh Bedrooms, more profoundly than I've ever connected with any kind of exhibit of paintings like this. Uh, it really does a great job of providing this narrative arc as you move through the various rooms. Uh, each room focuses on a specific place that Van Gogh lived and then displays a lot of the work that he did while he lived there. So at the beginning of the exhibit, you learn that Van Gogh lived 37 years and lived 37 different places over the course of that time, wandering between many different careers. Uh, and, you know, it emphasizes the prominent place that theme that uh, images like home or households or safe places uh, had in his artwork. So it really sets them up as this kind of nomadic figure who lived his life in search of a home, in search of a place to belong. Uh, in September of 1888 is when he moved into the Yellow House. Um, and the Yellow House was a place that he had really envisioned uh, as sort of a permanent home for himself. This was finally where he was going to have his home. And it was also going to be a sort of community studio hub for contemporary artists in France. So he invited his friend Paul uh, Gauguin, whom he envisioned as being sort of a leader of this group of artists. So he had this whole dream of what this community was going to be. So Van Gogh got really excited when he learned that Gauguin uh, did agree to come stay there. Uh, so Van Gogh started painting all these original works to decorate the house, including this famous bedroom painting. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it off the top of your head. As soon as you see it, you'd recognize it. It's just a really mm -hmm. simple little uh, image of a room. There's bright blue walls, a yellow bed, a few like little um, kind of quaint pieces of furniture. I feel like I've seen that. Uh, but it's become... Oh, sorry. oh, go ahead. No, I just, I feel like I've seen that... Uh be such a part of like pop culture and art history and all I, i've seen tons of like memes of people photoshopping themselves into those bedrooms and um beyond just me i feel like other people have taken that as like their artistic interpretation of this is me sitting on the bed or lying in the bed like it's whenever you said that i didn't know what you're talking about but as soon as you started describing it I was like, oh i've seen that everywhere yeah it's pretty iconic i would say it's definitely one of his best known uh images and i think it's it's known as kind of one of the most famous pieces of art from that century uh, so if you know anything about Van Gogh's life, you know that the Yellow House did not go well. Within just a few months, um, he suffered a pretty intense mental breakdown and wound up hospitalized. Uh, and Gauguin wound up leaving as a result of some intense conflict and unhealthy dynamics that uh, developed between the two of them. So over the next couple of years, Van Gogh basically alternated between life in Arles and life in a nearby asylum. Uh, a year after painting the original bedroom painting, he painted the second version uh, and then he painted a third version. They're all very similar, but they have minor differences between them. Um, so yeah, like less than two years after painting these bedroom paintings, uh, he had died. So this is the very first time, as far as I know, this is the first time all three versions of this painting have been gathered in the same gallery, um, which is part of why this is kind of a um, groundbreaking exhibit. Uh, so let me talk about my experience of the exhibit. I experienced the story um, and these paintings as really haunting and poignant. Um, I think it's sad when you deeply desire something but can't get it, and obviously that's a pretty common theme in pop culture. But I think it's a really different kind of sad and, and really tragic when you do get what you want, when you get something that you've dreamed about for a long time. You get it for just a brief moment, uh, but then you kind of watch it crumble. Um, and I think it's especially tragic if you recognize that you yourself were um, sort of incapable of maintaining this thing, <clears throat> that it was almost doomed to fail. So you see these three bedroom paintings painted over the course of a year, and they tell this really haunting story. You know, Van Gogh paints the first when he's just moved into the house, and he feels like maybe finally he's found this 
permanent home and community that he's always been seeking. But within just a few months, his friendship with Gogan is destroyed and he's incapable of living on his own in the house. Uh, so yeah, this exhibit got me on a few levels. I've, uh, I mean, a little autobiography. I've lived in eight different homes in the last 10 years, not including like summer trips and summer internships. And right now this month, I'm in the process of moving into my ninth home over the last 10 years. And I kind of feel like we can, a lot of us can identify with this sort of dread that tends to kind of line a lot of our dreams. You know, this fear that maybe if we do get the things we want, the things we've been dreaming of, we'll realize that they don't actually work or we'll actually watch ourselves destroy them. So, you know, that bedroom painting, I was familiar with it. One of the, the second version uh, kind of lives in the Art Institute of Chicago. So I've seen it a few times. You know, it used to strike me as just this sort of charming, whimsical, uh, kind of gentle ode to the comfort and the prides of the comfort and the pride of one's like safe space. And the painting absolutely does portray that. But now it's really colored by this kind of sheer disappointment of knowing that no space you inhabit is ever entirely safe from you and the demons that you bring with you. So that is the Van Gogh Bedrooms exhibit at the Art Institute. Unfortunately, like I said, this is the very last weekend that it's here, but it's a pretty uh, stunning exhibit, uh, and it definitely deserves all the uh, high traffic that it's been receiving. Will it? Is there any plans for their, for those paintings to be displayed anywhere else? Is it will it be like a traveling exhibit at all, or is it strictly for the Art Institute of Chicago? I honestly don't know. Um, as far as I know, I think this is just. I think this is a one-time exhibit. I wouldn't be surprised if something like this happened again, but I don't think they're planning to take this exhibit on tour. Um, they really, they've done some amazing things for the exhibit. Um, there was kind of a lot of buzz on social media that, um, I'm not sure who created it. I think it was the Art Institute, but somebody had essentially recreated um, a life-size replica of the painting, not just the bedroom itself, but the actual painting. And you could rent it one night at a time on Airbnb. I tried desperately <laughs> to get on there, but every time I tried to get on to rent it, it was like... Um, the rooms were gone in just seconds. So yeah. Um, so yeah, they've. I mean, the Art Institute's really gone all out. They've thrown a ton of energy into this, and it really shows. That's so cool, Brent. I would love to see the link to that Airbnb listing if it's still public on the web somewhere. Yeah. Then going, going, going. Yeah, and we can post that in the show yeah. notes, maybe. <laughs> we can tweet it out. That was so affecting. Thank you so much for sharing that, my friend. All right, Lucas, what are you feeling this week, dude? Uh, this week I'm feeling visco. Um, now if you, you know, if you're, if you're into mobile photography, I'm, I have no doubts you've heard about the app ViscoCam, uh, spelled V S C O. Uh, it is truly the best, most, most authentic looking, sorry, it has the best, most authentic looking presets, um, replicating like a true film look, uh, Visco, which it stands for visual supply company. Um, it started out making editing presets for Adobe's Lightroom and Photoshop, uh, but they've really grown into their own social network, which I've really fallen in love with over the last couple of days. The gist of it's really simple. You're posting a photo to your feed, but the really interesting thing is the lack of interaction there is. Um, there are no likes, no comments. You can follow people, but there's no numbers displaying how many people you're following or are following you. Um, I, I, know, I, I know you guys have all used the app, um, for editing photos, um, have you guys been on their their website at all? Yeah, I love uh, Visco Grid and kind of that community mm -hmm. there. There's something the presentation is so clean and like what you're talking about with the social networking aspect of it. It also feels really clean and kind of pure because you're not like, oh, how does this photo measure up by the numbers against something else? Like, I I right. love that part of it. Yeah, it's all about the photos themselves, which is really really awesome. Okay, Lucas, talk to me. So I have barely used uh, Visco. 
because I, at some point, I picked Afterlight as my photo editor, and just I tend to get really comfortable in certain apps. So, are there? Would you say there are advantages over of Visco over Afterlight that I should check it out? I think it's artistic preference. I mean, they 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 both have different kinds of filters. I'd say the the main difference is that um, Visco Cam is emulating a film look. So a lot of their presets, um, if you look as if one, you know, when you when you've laid them on, look as if they're shot on an actual film camera with texture and everything like that. Um, whereas Afterlight is more of more of a digital look, um, but it's really more about what you're what you're, what you're wanting out of your photo. I see. Yeah, I feel like the film look is very uh, in right now. There's a real move towards authenticity, and people are taking the analog look of film as kind of a a metric for that authenticity. Um, a lot of like style blogs and uh, new like upcoming yeah. brand websites and all that kind of stuff a lot of their product photography and lifestyle photography is taken in that more um, muted film look these mm-hmm. days. Yeah. And uh, honestly, that's where that's where Visco makes most of their money is from their, their Lightroom and Photoshop presets that people have been using for years for, um, for actual photography and stuff like that. But um, I think it's been really neat to see their move toward the mobile photography um, sector. Yeah, for me, Visco has always had the best black and white filters that I've ever used mm-hmm. on any app. And so it's my primary photo editing app, yeah. um, mostly for that reason. I just think it's a beautiful idea that it's all just focused on the love of photography. And it's that's what I'm really into this week. All right. Well, the thing I'm into this week is uh, the surprise single drop from Radiohead called Burn the Witch. <laughs> and yes. I just feel like this is a wonderful time to be alive in music. I'm so excited by it. Um, we got Beyonce's new album. We got, um, they announced that uh, Chance 3 is coming out this month. Uh, Views just dropped from Drake, even though all the best singles had already been released. Sorry, Drake. Um, but this new Radiohead song is something that I just could not stop listening to on repeat. Um, they uh, got a lot of buzz right before they dropped it by deleting their entire internet presence. Um, they just went completely, they, uh, learned how to disappear completely to steal everyone's pun from the internet this week. Um, but I have loved Radiohead. I really liked it, um, in college and high school and kind of this, uh, tribal way. Like I knew a lot of people who Radiohead was their first, their favorite band. And I wanted to be a part of the tribe of people who liked that kind of music. And so I did get a, a real personal, uh, preference and taste towards Radiohead, but it was kind of, uh, it felt kind of impressed upon me by other people and insisted upon in a way that uh, a lot of other music, I just came to like it more organically. Um, but when I think back on that, I think it m- makes me think sometimes, uh, oh, I'm actually not a fan of Radiohead. I just felt like I was supposed <laughs> to be a fan of Radiohead. I don't know yeah. if you guys can identify with that. But um, this song coming out was it's so good and it made me remember why I do like Radiohead why enjoying Radiohead really is um a film or not a film is a music preference of mine and a band that I really like and I'm always really interested in what they're doing um it starts off with this uh very orchestral um grounded melody uh that comes in and then by the end there's this you know sweeping haunting refrain 
uh, of Tom York singing Burn the Witch, and the music video for it is so good. They teased it on Instagram. After they got rid of all of their online presence, they started teasing clips of it on Instagram, and it's kind of this, uh, uh, did, did you guys ever see Davy and Goliath? No, you know I'm, I'm talking not familiar about that What is that? Okay, Davy and Goliath was this old show, and it was like uh, kind of uh, Christian, I think, and listeners, if I'm getting this wrong, correct me, but my understanding <laughs> is, because I only learned about it based on this video, but uh, it was like an old moralistic Saturday morning show. Um, it was all claymation, and it was this uh, little boy named Davy and this dog named Goliath, and so they would go around um, kind of in a leave-it-to-beaver um, type sitcom situation and they, Davey would learn all these moral lessons and it was very like uh, Christian media type stuff trying to teach that morality and this music video for Burn the Witch uses the same claymation style um, a lot of the characters that are used in it are they look like the same character models but it's about um, it shows kind of a, a British inspector coming and like a modern day inspector coming to a place uh, that's like an old uh, colonial era, like Salem type spot. And everyone, he's like showing the uh, the leader of the town, the mayor of the town in this colonial town is showing the inspector around the town. Like, see, isn't this our great town? And it's all of these very arcane kind of metaphorical examples for um, ways that getting tied into dogmatic um, like fear and uh, tribalism can really uh, hurt people. And it's just like this really interesting critique on organized religion. Um, and the way it plays out is so interesting, especially whenever it's juxtaposed with it being in the same style as Davy and Goliath. So yeah. the song itself is just an amazing musical composition, but I also am just so compelled by the message of it. Uh, and I just found out when I was watching Civil War last night that Paul Thomas Anderson directed a music video for them that came out last night. And this weekend, they're supposed to drop their whole next album. Wait, how did you find that out while you were watching Civil War last night? Huh? Oh, no, I was just on my phone the whole time. I was that okay. guy. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> no, whenever I got home, I found out that it had been announced while I was in the theater. Oh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, Paul Thomas Anderson called him. Yeah, Paul Thomas Anderson was like, are you watching a movie? Get out of the theater. I have important news. <laughs> There will be blood. Um, no, so I uh, so excited that that's dropping. And final note, I'm so happy that Radiohead is not picking sides in this insane streaming battle. They're just I like thought you were about to say picking sides in Civil War. In Civil War. <laughs> so glad they're not picking sides in Civil War. No, they're just staying neutral. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're Switzerland. Um, so it's. Uh, they are available for streaming on Spotify. All major streaming platforms, they're available. Um, you can watch it on their website. They're just like staying out of the fray, which is, was especially refreshing whenever I was like, oh, I'm really interested in hearing views. I want to hear Drake's new album. And it's like, oh, Apple Music exclusive. And I'm like, just screw this. Screw you guys. Like Radiohead has such a complicated love-hate relationship with the internet. And they still, uh, despite like revolutionizing some of the ways that uh, buying music online is done, are just like no, we're not, we're not going to penalize our listeners and our fans for trying to get access to our music. So, Radiohead's awesome. Go listen to Burn the Witch, and uh, I'm really excited for the new album to drop. By the time you're listening to this, guys, it may already be out. 
So, here's to a beautiful, bright future. As of this moment, you are all deputized as spoiler sheriffs. Um, if somebody starts talking about something that sounds like a spoiler, like cut them off, punch them in the face, punch them in the face, through the straight through the Skype mic. Right. So we're gonna definitely have like a non-spoiler section, but we'll let you know when we're gonna get into the juicy spoiler talk. Absolutely. So as of right now, you're all no matter what you know about this movie, you're completely safe. We'll let you know when to turn it off if you want to go see the movie before you hear the rest of it. Okay. So everything up to Captain America Civil War spoilers are totally on the table. Let's talk through a few questions just to give everyone an idea of our preference when it comes to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So um, let's just go around the table talking about which Marvel movie is your favorite, and uh, do you have Marvel Cinematic Universe fatigue? Yeah, so I'll go first. Um, I love all the Marvel movies for different reasons. So I would have to say that my favorite is... Um, Captain American, excuse me. Captain, Captain American. Am- <laughs> Captain American. I'm a real dedicated fan. You're really into these, yeah. <laughs> My favorite is Captain America Civil War. One, because it is an incredible movie, but mostly because Captain America is my favorite Marvel superhero in this cinematic universe. And so I'm primed to love that movie because I love that character so much. I would also say that going into this movie, I definitely had Marvel fatigue. The Doctor Strange trailer kind of brought out that fatigue in me, even though it's a really cool trailer. But after seeing it, the fatigue is gone. I'm pumped. I'm pumped for more Marvel. (laughs) We'll talk about why later. But this movie definitely brought me back to life. Uh, All right. So uh, I would say it's probably a tie for me. My favorite Marvel film uh, between Guardians of the Galaxy and Captain America Winter Soldier, just because those are two. Those are just such different films, which kind of says something cool about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, obviously this um, super fun, super funny kind of space opera, whereas Captain America Winter Soldier, um, I think, is just one of their most uh, focused and kind of just consistently driving films. Uh, It's also got some really interesting character beats. Um, I will admit, though, that I came into this movie with intense Marvel fatigue. Um, I've seen most of the Marvel films the last few years. I've missed a couple of them, uh, but I've seen almost all of them. Uh, And unfortunately, this movie did not uh, work to assuage my Marvel fatigue. It actually intensified it, but we can get into that more when we talk about the film. I do not have Marvel fatigue. I have superhero fatigue in general. Um, just the amount of superhero films that are coming out and so so quickly um, and just the stakes. Every, all of them are super high and that's, I mean, we'll get into it with this, with this film, but um, this definitely didn't feel like a classic superhero movie and I really enjoyed that. I, mean, I think, I mean, comparing it to 
my favorite Marvel movie, which is also uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, um, is quite different. I mean, they're two very different films, but I feel like this is one that uh, could take that top spot. I'm going to have to see it again. Yeah, Brent, I thought I was going to get away with being the only one saying a tie uh, because everyone else was going to be decisive and pick one, but my (laughs) pick is exactly the same as yours. It's a tie between Captain America, uh, The Winter Soldier, and Guardians of the Galaxy. I love those movies both so much for how focused they are and how well they do uh, what they're trying to do. Uh, After seeing this movie, I think it moved it a little bit more towards uh, Captain America, Winter Soldier, just because of how much I love this trilogy and... I'm with you, Lucas. This movie may have moved to my number one spot. Um, as far as Marvel movie fatigue, I no, I don't have any. <laughs> no. I have none. Fatigue is not in losses. <laughs> no. no, like I, I just, I'm. They got me. They have their hook in my jaw, and I am all the way sold out. Um, I will say, uh, I was thinking about this before, and the closest thing I have to, uh superhero or marvel fatigue is i have some same superhero fatigue i am tired of the x-men mm-hmm. movies i am tired of wolverine i'm tired of seeing batman over and over again but i'm so excited for doctor strange i'm so excited for the black panther i'm so excited for all of these new properties that are being brought out because they're not the same like it's part of what makes marvel such a compelling company and has made their comics so successful is they have you know, these same kind of common threads throughout superhero um, stories, but everyone's bringing something new and interesting to the table. Like, I'm super excited about the Afrofuturist um, influence of the Black Panther comic book series and seeing that portrayed on screen. So, yeah, I, I'm i not very good at uh, <laughs> being objective about these movies, so I want to say that up front. Um, but, yeah, so... so- Something I was definitely curious about before we go into what we thought of the film was before going into this movie, did either of you, or excuse me, did any of y'all have a side that you were already leaning towards in the Iron Man versus Captain America debate? Um, who were you rooting for going into this movie or, or were you completely unbiased? Yeah, this this is interesting for me. I mean, and I'm sure Lawson will feel the same way. Having read the comics, I feel like I, d- I definitely had a bias, so I would love to hear from you and Brent before we get into me and Lawson's nerdy explanations of what our <laughs> thoughts were. <laughs> yeah. Well, I kind of already showed my cards a little bit early in that Captain America is my favorite of the Avengers. Um, I always have loved the tension between him and Tony, and I'm not a huge fan of Tony um, as, like, a person. And so uh, <laughs> I was definitely going into this on Captain America's side, no matter what his political stance was. I was like, <laughs> who cares? I'm very loyal. <laughs> this is this is a good example of me experiencing intense Marvel fatigue is I mostly avoided the marketing for this film. I watched the trailers, but I think a big part of the like marketing push was kind of like asking you which side you were on or asking you to choose a side. And to me, that just kind of felt like work and felt like I, mean, I did not feel like I had a strong opinion. I didn't want to have to like research their varying ideologies and like <laughs> evaluate their team. So, yeah, even just coming in again, like I came in thinking like this would be a great film. But even just the idea of like I have to pick a side just felt like I've, I've I already had to pick between Batman and Superman this year. You're like, I'm already team Edward. Do I need to be team something else? <laughs> I don't like, know enough teams already. <laughs> uh, um. 
Well, yeah, like Lucas said, he and I both read the uh, Civil War comics before seeing the movie, which is something Lucas does for every movie, as far as I know, and this is the first time I've done that, aside from <laughs> Lord of the Rings. Um, 98 comics later, I really found myself on the side of Captain America. Um, there is so much packed in to the Civil War arc in the Marvel comics, um, but at the end of it, um, I, I want to talk through all this more in spoilers, but I really found myself on the side of Captain America and what he was representing and the setting in which the original Civil War story arc was written really lent itself to that. So I'll unpack that more in spoilers. But yeah, I, I was going in more on Captain America's side. I was also going in more on Captain America's side. And I think I think something that the, that the film did really well is like, and it, that echoed the comics is going in, you know, neither of them are wrong. It's just, I mean, it's, it's super political. And I think, I think that's something that the, that the comics did really well. And, um, is, I mean, it did it in what 96, um, 96 issues or whatever. And I think that's extremely difficult to do is showing both sides of the argument in, you know, a two and a half hour movie. But I think the film did a really good job of, um, of kind of narrowing that down as much as possible. Um, I think overall this movie is a fantastic, fantastic piece of media. Um, I think one of, one of one of the issues that I had is the, um, I feel like the director's lack of confidence in themselves, um, mainly with with action scenes. I feel like that's something that Joss Whedon did really well um, in his Avengers movie, and I do see this as an Avengers movie just because of how many characters we get in this. Um, I feel like Joss Whedon had a really good good sense of um, showing action and showing you where characters were in the action um, and feeling it, making it feel like one cohesive fight with a with a purpose. Um, and I feel like the Russo brothers definitely do a great job of of um, inter- intertwining dialogue with their action um, to make it not just feel like um, a bro fight. But I feel like the the way they shoot these fights um, are not as cinematic as I feel like they could be. A lot of them are just kind of like one-on-one fights, really get, get the camera as close as possible. I think which comes from filming TV fights and things like that is you just, I mean, you, 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 want, you want to get as close to the action as possible to, you know, to hide, um, you know, bad choreography or to, um, to be able to cut as much as possible just to make it seem as brutal as possible. As, as you can. Um, and for a Captain America movie, I, I, I don't think that's necessary. I think the choreography is absolutely amazing in this movie. And I think, I think they, they could have, uh, they could have, they could have put a little more trust in their choreographers and their actors, um, and, and the, their DP and just locked that camera down and, and made it, made it some really beautiful, beautiful fight scenes, which we'll get more into into spoilers. I should say as well that so far, most of my comments have just talked about kind of my like really negative grumpy attitude coming into this movie. But uh, yeah, I will t- definitely agree that this is, um, I mean, yeah, it's a really well-made film. I think it would be near the top of my list of kind of my favorite Marvel films. Um, you know, we don't have to spend much or any time comparing this to Batman versus Superman, even though I think those two films are trying to do something very similar, or they have kind of similar themes, and obviously, like, the idea of pitting two kind of iconic heroes with obvious parallels, you know, Captain America, Superman, that kind of thing. Uh, when you compare those films and everything that was wrong with Zack Snyder's to everything that's right with this film, this film is just so obviously superior. Um, even just in terms of always kind of knowing where everybody is and why, uh, what they're doing and why. Um, and like Lucas was saying, some really stunning action set pieces. Um, overall, my Marvel fatigue aside, this was a movie I had a lot of fun with. Yeah, this is a movie 
uh, more than any Marvel movie before it that is one I want to watch over and over. I feel like the rest of the movies have been very entertaining, and there have been different things I liked about it beyond just, you know, spectacle. But this movie, I felt like, had so much more to unpack and to explore. Um, uh, like you were saying, Lucas, it's a very political film. There's a lot of different ideologies looking at it. And I also, I'll agree with what you said again. This is not, this did not feel like a typical superhero movie. And it's one that I find myself wanting to already own on Blu-ray so I can just watch it over and over. I'll say that um, this might be kind of an obvious statement, but while I had an awesome time with this movie, I think the action sequences are some of my favorite in the entire cinematic universe. Um, This movie features two of my favorite Marvel characters, so of course I was like destined to love it. Um, I do feel like... Part of me really wishes I could have seen what this movie would have been like outside of the grander cinematic arc that it is playing a part in. Um, I think it's incredibly hard for the Russo brothers to try to tell a cohesive story while at the same time being a chapter in like a longer, broader storyline that has to play into like this franchise of like two more Avengers movies that are coming after that they're going to have to direct. Um, So I really would have been interested to see if this movie could have just focused on what just these characters and not had to build up other new characters, even though they were so fun and other new storylines that are going to happen afterwards. Um, I really, I wish I could have seen what that movie would have been like. That being said, I had an awesome time in this movie. Totally agree. So it sounds like all of us really, really enjoyed this movie and would recommend it. Um, With that, we're going to jump into our spoilers. Before we get started, does anyone want to get out? Are you paying attention? It's your last chance to walk away. Let me tell you what's going to happen. No, crack and gas. Spoilers! Remember, you wanted this. Uh... Sandra, to the point that you were just making, I totally agree, and that was one of the things that was hardest for me about this movie was whenever I read the comics, there was kind of a resolution. Like, you kind of get to the end, and you're like, oh, that's how the Civil War ends. Right. And in this, it was just kind of like, well, I guess they stopped fighting. Like, (laughs) (laughs) they just stopped punching each other, was it? Yeah. (laughs) That was like my only critique. I mean, maybe as we talk through this more, we'll realize I, I will realize I have more critiques about it, but that felt like my only real critique of it was I was like, I wish this was more of a, a, a singular piece. Sure. Yeah. And that's, you know, the, part of the joy of this universe is having all of these movies and they're all connected, but that's also one of the fatal flaws is that all the movies have to be connected and they <laughs> totally. can't just, and it's hard to tell singular stories. Um, that's part of the reason I think people love Guardians of the Galaxy so much is because mm-hmm. it is its own story mm-hmm. that um, is you know vaguely connected to the rest of the universe, but doesn't isn't tied down by anything. Totally, I think that's part of what helped this movie do so well. I mean, there's a myriad of reasons, but helped this movie do so well where Batman, uh, Superman did so poorly was because. They have. We have all the character development. We already know about their relationships. We've have yeah. all these movies to draw on, so we can just show this conflict instead of having to build all that up in the first horrible dark hour, and then in the second dark hour, try to uh, sort all of it out. So I, um, yeah, it's it's a catch twenty two. It I think when you're trying to tell stories 
as uh, long and intertwined as comic book stories. I think this is the best way that you can try to attempt that other than like an animated cartoon show, but uh, it's not without its drawbacks. You know, there's a lot of people who have talked about who have kind of compared the Marvel Cinematic Universe to like a really, really great TV show. And that kind of struck me walking out of the theater for the second Captain America film, Winter Soldier. Um, I remember seeing that film and thinking it was so great and and also recognizing that they had done some specific they had taken specific steps in that film to kind of establish like, oh, we're going to make just a ton more of these things. Um, and so I remember almost kind of coming to peace with like, OK, I can even if um, a lot of these films had kind of started to blend together in my mind and kind of overlap with each other because they are telling this grander story, I can kind of almost experience these films as um yeah, kind of like a long TV show, kind of it, instead of focusing too, too much on any one particular piece or one particular episode, just focus more on the big grand story they're telling. And I think that that kind of relieves some of the pressure from the movies in terms of like, it's okay if they repeat certain themes and it's okay if um, if the stakes are a little lower. That's always kind of been one of my problems with the Marvel films is that it feels like the stakes are not very high. I think they've really only killed off maybe one uh, major character permanently and just about any other character who's ever died or seemed to die has come back which obviously is something they get from the comics but um, I think if thinking of it kind of as a big TV show like it's okay that um, even if a character dies off like they'll be back a few movies later um, and I don't know if that's like a criticism or not of the Marvel films but it's definitely allowed me to just kind of step back and enjoy them for what they are to me. To your point Brent I think um it helps that the Russo brothers are great television directors. Um, mm-hmm. I think that that really ties into that feeling of these the movies that they've directed. It makes me excited for the next ones because I think they're really great at yeah, continuing those character arcs. And to your point also, Brant, when you're talking about like no one dies... In the trailer, Rhodes dies. Like, they show him falling to the ground. I didn't believe that is... for a second. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, no. I don't think anybody thought that he was actually dead. I, <laughs> okay, when it happened so... in the film, I thought it would just because I thought they would want to establish stakes like when they killed off Quicksilver. But right. then, like, even yeah. in that moment, like, they didn't even let him die for a little while. In that moment, it was like, oh, we've got a heartbeat. So, like, yeah. it, nobody even came close to dying. He's fine. Yeah, well, okay, in the comic books, and I'm not going to try not to do this for the whole thing, but, like, a character does die. And it's not a comic book character that I was familiar with or has been in any way alluded to in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But, like, this superhero dies and he's friends with all the other superheroes and that really intensifies the conflict. And so I thought that that was going to be something that they actually did to give this movie more stakes. And they're like, nah, man, this is a sitcom. Everyone's going to be fine. Every, because I, 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 I kind of feel the same way. I kept waiting for someone to die to, to make sick. And when Rhodey fell, I was like, well, maybe they will kill him. Um, or like Lawson said, in, in the comics, it's in one of their big fights, which I interpreted as like the airport fight. But it's a giant character who dies. And as in like a huge person, not like a... <laughs> his name's Goliath. Uh, yeah, his, his, his name's Goliath. But when Ant-Man got huge, I was like, oh my gosh, what if they kill Ant-Man? And then, I, But then I just thought, well, they can't kill Ant-Man. They've got more movies to do. And it just all turned into a money thing in my head. And I'm, that's exactly just what this is. Is like they can't kill any of these people because these are recurring characters that they have to continue to use and continue to make money on. Okay, let's go ahead and talk about that airport fight because for me that was like absolutely the highlight of the film. That was the um, best. For sure. Just for so sure. much fun on screen. I mean, one of the things that they do so well, I think we saw this in the Avengers, maybe less so in Avengers 2, but they know that what makes the fights 
between these characters so interesting is that they all do different things and they all have very specific abilities. Um, and so, yeah, I think that they had a ton of fun with that on screen. Uh, the sequence where Ant-Man was running around in Iron Man's costume, kind yes. of destroying it from the inside was a blast. <laughs> I'm your I will conscience. say it, I, it felt like, um, kind of, it felt like Scarlet Witch and Vision got sidelined a bit. And I think it makes sense just because those are two characters who by themselves have the potential to really kind of disrupt the entire fight. <laughs> but yeah. I think anytime you have 12 <laughs> characters fighting, it's just it's inevitable that some of them are going to be sidelined a bit. Well, one thing I did like about that fight is that, and I mean, this isn't a new thing for fight sequences, but how they like separated the groups into like different areas of the airport so that it wasn't like Scarlet Witch could just like move everyone to the side because they were all in the same place. But to have like Sam and Bucky and like Spider-Man off in like one whole different area, I thought was a really fun element to that. That was my favorite uh, favorite set piece in the whole thing, and I loved how in all the trailers, all the movie posters, and everything, like Spider-Man's all over that fight. He's and whenever they're running and charging at each other, Spider-Man's in that, and digitally he wasn't. They left that out. They left that as a thing that you get to see for the first time whenever you're in the theater, and I loved that. And I don't mean to derail the subject, but Spider-Man in this movie so awesome i think he was so much of what made this movie and that fight sequence in particular so compelling i just making him a younger character made all of his comedy make so much more sense he's able to be his uh comedic kind of wisecracking like source of humor and levity self without it being like that's a pretty cheesy joke for you to say 36-year-old Toby Maguire. It's like, you're right. a kid, and you're like trying to do your best. And it was just uh, the scene wherever Tony Stark went and met Spider-Man for the first time. I was like super apprehensive, um, as much as somebody as unabashedly of a fanboy as me can be apprehensive, about uh, reintroducing Spider-Man another time without going into the ultimate iteration of it being this half-African-American, half-Latino character, which is what I wish they had done. Whenever they're like, no, it's going to be a straight white kid who's Peter Parker, and it's like, you're going to see this all over again. I was like, blech. But I loved it. I think this is my favorite iteration of Spider-Man, and it added so much to the fight to have this kind of young kid thrown in the middle of everything, viewing it like a tryout and having so much fun and just being in awe of what was going on. I, I loved Spider-Man in this scene. Okay, guys, I have some Spider-Man thoughts I have to get <laughs> off my chest. Um, so I definitely loved Spider-Man in this film. Loved the kid, loved the actor, loved the way they built up that character. Um, I'm not questioning or like disappointed in the way Marvel introduced him into this story. I, I'm for that introduction. I am upset at the choice that the character Tony Stark made to introduce this kid into this fight. Agreed. (laughs) Yeah. So, first of all, in general, I think Tony Stark is a shady motherfucker. And (laughs) I don't trust him for a second. And this move just proves the kind of, like, child soldier bullshit he's willing to pull. Um, I think it's very wrong and creepy to bring a child into a fight with like the best superheroes in the world that he has like no stakes in he doesn't know any of these people (laughs) he doesn't know really what they're fighting for he's only been presented with tony's side of the story Um, yeah and not only is he like 
a kid, but also he's being like pretty much coerced into participating. He doesn't want to. And Tony like subtly blackmails him into doing this uh, as well as just like kind of intimidates <laughs> him with like his prestige and money. And so overall I was like, this is such creepy nonsense. And I really would have loved if there had been a moment in the film where Spider-Man's mask comes off and all the other like superheroes see how young this kid is. And like Natasha and Steve just look at Tony with just like horrified faces. Like you are a monster. (laughs) What have you done? You're bringing random children into this fight. Uh. Anyway. So that, that was my reaction to that. Loved everything he did hated Tony Stark as a character for bringing him into it. <laughs> yeah, I felt, and this comes with um, hiring an a t- actual teenage actor, but I felt really uncomfortable when a 37-year-old man was beating up a teenager in this movie. Absolutely. And it, it, was, it, was just a, it was just a really weird feeling that I haven't gotten from any of the other um, superheroes because, I mean, I know everyone's invincible. I know everyone's going to walk away okay. But just that image of, like, Captain America you know, wrecking shop on Spider-Man was just like, oh, he is a kid. Like, calm down, man. Like, this is this is not cool at all. Yeah. And yeah. I, 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 I think it did bring up points that, I mean, that, that came up later. It's just like, this is, this is bad. Like, everything is bad. Like, both of you, like, have points, but this whole battle is, is just wrong. And I've always loved Spider-Man as a character, just in general. But I think the big difference is that in the Spider-Man films, he chooses to involve himself in all of those conflicts and like be a hero in those situations. And this just felt very forced upon him. So I want to talk about Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt for a moment. Uh, there's a moment in season one in which Titus is auditioning for a musical. The musical is called Spider-Man 2, Too Many Spider-Men. <laughs> and near the end of the episode, it plays one of his main solos. And I will crush that Spider-Man and then that other Spider-Man and all the Spider-Man till I'm the Spider-Man. Spider-Man this was kind of my, that was how I felt when Spider-Man and Black Panther were introduced. I think they're both introduced really well. Um, both actors are great, but I kind of just felt this sense of dread of like, okay, this movie did not eliminate any superheroes and it introduced <laughs> two brand new superheroes. So like this yeah. Marvel universe is just so thick and packed. And I was like, so now we're going to have more Spider-Man films. We're going to have more Black Panther movies. And I just kind of felt this growing sense of like, oh, they're just going to keep making more and more and more and more superheroes. Even if they're like interesting characters who are done really well, it's just the universe is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, and I will defend that because I my heart will not let me do anything else. I agree with you that I can I totally can see that being overwhelming, but I am so interested in the stories they have to tell, particularly with Black Panther. And yes. the thing that's interesting to me about... Uh, what's going on and all these new spinoffs happening is like, I would want to see a Black Panther movie if there was no Marvel Cinematic Universe. But the only reason we're getting a Black Panther movie is because there's a Marvel Cinematic Universe. So I, as much as I get it, it's like, stop making these movies trailers for other movies. I'm just, I'm so excited that this is getting enough momentum as a brand to bring stories like Black Panther, which have so many incredible, like, uh, political and um 
there are so many strains of thought that have never been represented in pop culture before. I mean, I just I'm excited to see this diverse story character thing get fleshed out. Okay, I feel like we definitely also need to cover um as cool as all of, like the new guys are. I would really love for us to have a conversation about Captain America, Bucky, and Tony Stark and, like, that main central conflict of this movie. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yes. Kick it off, Sandra. Okay. Well, <laughs> I can't leave this podcast without talking about my love of the relationship between Captain America and Bucky. To me, it is the most compelling love story in the entire cinematic universe. <laughs> and I'm very serious about that. Marvel, I think, does a lot of things really well. But one thing I don't think they've ever done well is tell a convincing love story. And I think that's proven. You don't think that random niece and Captain America kissing was super compelling? (laughs) Oh, I have some thoughts on that. (laughs) But I really do think that the relationship between Steve and Bucky, they have the best chemistry of any partnership in the cinematic universe. Um, Their affection for each other has always really shown through. Um, I think all three of the Captain America movies have just been like just very gay in general. And so that's why they're my favorite. Um, I hold no bars about that. Um, Steve Rogers is my favorite Avenger because he's the most in love of all the Avengers. Um, So obviously, like, there is no part of me that expects Marvel to make like a romantic relationship between Steve and Bucky, like canon fact in this universe. Um, But I do think they definitely play up the love between those two characters very heavily, which makes it even more bullshit that random ass kiss that they threw in in the middle of this movie. (laughs) Um, I'm not gay, I promise. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It was the biggest no homo they've ever pulled. (laughs) It was Tom Cruise jumping up and down on Oprah's couch. Yeah, Yeah. okay. But it was just like, Steve, it felt so out of place. It felt like not earned at all. It was just like weirdly in the middle of the movie. And to have like Bucky, like nodding his head, like in approval was so strange. Yeah, bro. We're both straight. Yeah. It It was also like, I don't know for me, it's creepy that she's Peggy's niece. I don't know. Yeah. Super creepy. I think that's really weird. weird. Yeah. Um, Anthony Russo, one of the directors in an interview before the movie came out, he said, there may be a kiss in Civil War, but I bet you can't guess which character is between. It's between, and I'm like, dude, we can guess. It's the yeah, two. Totally. <laughs> it's the two different gendered people in the movie. <laughs> yeah. um, one person on Tumblr, in response to that quote, said, "I can't say for sure who it will be, but I am sure about two things. Number one, it will be a heterosexual. Number two, it will disappoint me." And <laughs> so I, Nailed it. yeah, I had that strong feeling going in. Um, but yeah, mostly Bucky has always, is my second favorite Marvel character. His fight scenes in this movie, I think were so incredible. Mm -hmm. I think Sebastian Stan is doing some of the best acting in this cinematic universe as Bucky. Um, so I just had a blast spending more time with those two characters. I'll take any excuse to spend more time with them. Sandra, I'm totally on board with you. I think whether, you know, whether people come in and, and read the, um, captain bucky relationship as like just straight up you know romantic erotic or whether they just read it as like these are two like something i mean friends but really kind of have a bond that's obviously something much deeper than friendship whatever it is i do think it's the most 
interesting form of love that we've seen, like you said, in any of the uh, Marvel films. And I think it's it plays out really well. It's played out really well over the last few um, the last few Captain America films. Um, and I think they do great stuff with it here. I like that they, I wish they had gone a little further, but I like that they kind of have a love triangle between Captain and Bucky and Falcon. Um, where yeah, obviously absolutely. in the second Captain America film, Falcon is kind of introduced as this like modern day friend for Captain America and he's super loyal and always with him, but they just don't have the same kind of chemistry and uh, kind of longing that you see between Captain and Bucky. There, um, there are definitely some major rom-com vibes in Winter Soldier between Falcon and Steve. Like there's a meet cute. <laughs> there's like a lot of setup for that as well. Part of what I loved about the second Captain America film was um, you have this moment near the end where Captain America and Bucky are fighting and um, Captain like reuses this line, I think, from the first film about being with him till the end. And you get the idea that like, even if it means he's going to die, he's going to stick with Bucky and he's going to try and fight to redeem him and try to fight to kind of bring Bucky back to life. Um, so seeing that loyalty play out in all three of these films and seeing how it really does save um, save Bucky from kind of this deep hypnosis is really powerful. And then it also means that when you get the the credit sequence in which um, in which Bucky is being put into some kind of like hypersleep or hyperfreeze um it's just the saddest ending and it's like oh, you know that the captain up. america is going to be longing for him and and yearning for him and missing him and uh it's just it's such a sad but such a like really kind of rewarding ending to their story for now yeah i also have to add that a literal line in this movie is that captain america apologizes for being distracted in a fight and he says you know, he just mentioned Bucky's name, and I was sixteen all over again. And I was sixteen the in Brooklyn. Thing you've ever heard. <laughs> also, just the entire plot of this movie was very literally us against the world, and again, just yeah. the best love story ever. <laughs> Man, all the subtext that I just don't pick up on. <laughs> like when y'all are saying that, it doesn't feel like subtext. It feels like sub subtext. But it's so much has to do with what oh. you're bringing to the watching the movie. To me, in the movie, it is text. It is not <laughs> subtext. It and is, again, well, well, go ahead, Sandra. I was just gonna say it is text, and it's just like the sad corporate overlords like not letting it be <laughs> real. That's well, and I even think, yeah, I still think even if like. Whether these characters are intended to be entirely heterosexual or not, whether their love is intended to be like a, something erotic or something entirely platonic, I think either way, it's just still the most interesting love story. I think it's rare. Uh, I mean, I think it's much more common to see like romantic love stories than it is to see friendship love stories. But I think even if this is just yeah. a story of a really important friendship and a friendship that is more important to each of these guys than any of the other relationships in their life, even that is something really kind of rare and fresh to see. Um, and I think it's kind of one of the best things that these films offer is just saying, here's this, you know, I, um, this woman and I have some chemistry, but ultimately this relationship I share with this man who, with whom I have so much history and so much fondness and closeness, um, that's, that's kind of the key. That's the, the centering relationship in my life. I think that's just really wonderful. And so I think, yeah, it's, it's an easy place for queer audiences to identify, but I think also just anybody who's ever had a close friend like that. Um, who was one of the most important relationships in their life. I think it's it's exciting to see that being played out on the big screen. You know, Brent, I, I really like that point of view. And I think I would be much more comfortable and accepting of just like this platonic love between the two of them if 
Marvel wasn't constantly trying to, like, push down our throats these, like, hetero relationships that don't need to be happening. Um, I feel like... My bias may be showing here, but I don't feel like Steve had any chemistry with this Sharon character. Um, And I feel like Marvel often does this, where, like, they build they try to put in sexual tension between any male and female character that are like ever interacting with each other which and vision yeah like that is i think a sh- i didn't even realize that that was supposed to be a love triangle until like after i saw the movie and i was reading st- or not a love triangle but like a possible like love connection um i feel like natasha's character has had sexual tension with every single male superhero that is like an avenger with the exception of maybe like thor um, I just, in general, I feel like it's a very unnecessary and I wish they would be more willing to embrace the idea that like these male and female characters can be friends with each other, that like Sharon and Steve can like have this great friendship bond and work together without any sexual tension whatsoever. You know, once again, that was one of the best elements of Winter Soldier is Captain America and Black Widow spent a ton of time together in that movie. And was there, I mean, was there any indication that they might have a relationship? Because I thought that that was kind of off the table in that film. So I I did love that they had like a platonic buddy relationship. I love the friendship between those two characters. But of course they did make them kiss, even if it yep. was like an undercover thing. Oh, they have they to did. make the man that. and the woman kiss at one point, which I think is bullshit. <laughs> All right. To uh, steer the conversation in a slightly different direction. Go for it. Um. So just going back to what you're talking about with the dynamics between Sebastian Stan, between the Winter Soldier, Captain America, and Iron Man, um, I found myself, and you guys may want to speak to this as well, like, I started out on Team Captain America, and I left that movie a little bit more Team Iron Man. It just, it kind of made me wrestle with, like, okay, what do I actually think about what the role of government should be as far as uh, power and reach into people's lives? Because it's easy for me as somebody who really dislikes war to be like, yeah, in wartime, whenever we were doing all these overreaches in the, for the, you know, excuse of safety, then yeah, I'm against that. But if you're in a place um, where you're like, oh, I kind of like the person who's in office right now, like you got to check yourself. Do you still feel that same way about what the government's role in the world should be just because you happen to agree a little bit more with the government that's in place right then? So, well, I, and again, to, to kind of paraphrase what Lawson said, I feel like the, the comics wanted to talk more about um, oppression and the registration side of, of this, of, you know, these people have to register and it, um, it kind of goes into civil liberties and stuff like that. Whereas this is just basically the argument is, can rich, mostly white people have a private army? Right. And that's that's basically the argument here. And I feel like that gives a little more credit to... Iron Man's side because I mean in general no I don't believe that should be a thing but I feel like the way it was handled that that's what puts me on Captain America's side is you know this this is how we should do it and I feel like it I feel like it did a great job of of going into um those arguments as opposed to you know getting bogged down in the politics of it and it, it's it, it makes it a darker story if you if you if you would go that direction toward the comic books but this was able to concisely sum up their arguments and just have it still be a fun movie. What I will say is I thought that they did such a great job of establishing 
the different factions motivations throughout the really the first third and establishing okay here's here's what's bringing these different heroes to fight each other here's why they believe so strongly in what they believe that in the third act when it came down to just iron man and captain america and winter soldier and they introduced this element in which you find out that it was bucky who killed um tony stark's parents to me that just felt entirely unnecessary and almost kind of contrived and i think it was kind of necessary to push Tony Stark over the edge where rather than just trying to subdue these two, he might actually kill them. But it felt like by that point we had already, you know, we had already established like this is a pretty intense ideological clash. And it's one because of the ideological clash, like Tony Stark has been tasked with essentially like bringing these two people. um, Wow. What's the word I'm looking for? Like into custody. Yes. So, so like it, it did a great job of establishing this ideological clash, and now Tony Stark is responsible for bringing these folks into custody, um, and then to suddenly introduce this really kind of personal, emotional element. Um, it, yeah, it just felt like we don't need that. These people are already fighting, and the conflict is intensified. It, not to keep bringing up Batman versus Superman, but that did a very similar. That took a very similar direction in the last act where. Um, you've already set up that these two people have a great reason to fight, so you don't have to throw this kind of weird personal family element into the mix. So when I was watching this, like I said earlier, um, I will always be on Captain America's side on like a personal character level, <laughs> but on like yeah. the political level, I was very squarely in the middle of the two sides. I saw both points very much. I don't think that the world should be okay with, like you said, Lucas, a elite private army of like rich white people. Um, but at the same time, what it made me really think of is this is proving exactly why in like all of superhero culture, like secret identities have been so important is to like navigate these waters. It's like, mm-hmm. you can't, when you have super abilities, you can't let the government control those abilities, but you, but the government also shouldn't just let people roam free. And so secret identities are the middle ground of that. Um, and so Which we haven't gotten. Not yeah. even a little. So like yeah. Marvel has like veered away from like the general superhero norm of like, here's a superhero. He, nobody knows who he is except for like his close friends in this universe, everyone knows who all of these superheroes are. <laughs> yeah. And it's, so it makes for this interesting plot line. It's like, what happens when the world knows who the superheroes are? Um, yeah, so that that really brought that to light for me. Totally. That was one of the things about this movie that makes it one that I want to rewatch so much over and over is because, like, there are these themes of... Uh, there are these themes that are so much fun to explore and they show both sides so well. Um, it doesn't feel like either side is really like evil in any sense. You're just trying to figure out like these are both valid arguments. These are different ways of seeing the world and we're exploring those in general and seeing how those come into conflict with people who care about each other, which I think is something a lot more interesting to see than just like this is a big bad guy he has a glowing box get the glowing box from the big bad guy yeah yeah i also just want to point out that i feel like i've been spewing a lot of tony stark hate in this (laughs) (laughs) review and i do want to say while tony stark as a character i have a lot of issues with i love also watching him as a character so i love the Mm -hmm. iron man movies i love having this like portrayal be a part of the story um I think there's like a balance between those two things. Yeah, I thought they did a really good job of showing how much he 
like doing the story of the kid that was building houses in uh, Sokovia and just kind of showing he had this heart for the situation. Like he wasn't trying to just, oh, this is my way and I'm a, you know, a rich futurist. And so I have decided that this is what I want to do. Um, it really humanized both sides of this. I think probably even better than the comics did for Iron Man's side. In Iron Man's side, it was just like total hubris. And not to say that that's not part of his equation because it's Tony Stark that's always part of his equation. But I felt like they did a much better job of being of in this movie showing how hesitant both sides were to anything coming to conflict. So I want to bring up a different topic. What I think would be one of my criticisms of this film, and really this is kind of endemic to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but I think this film really kind of captures it um, in a particularly grating way for me. And that is that I think there's a certain kind of hypocrisy in movies like this and a lot of other superhero films that simultaneously wants to revel in but also self-consciously criticize its own violence. And so one of the jokes I made about the trailer Mm. is that there's a moment near the beginning where, you know, a government official just shows a montage. It's just clips from previous Marvel films. And at one point, Captain America goes, that's enough, turn it off. It's like even for these characters to watch their own Marvel films, they say like, oh, this is too much violence. This is too much wreckage and carnage. Um, So I do think there's a certain kind of hypocrisy there, especially because these films have really high body counts but are so bloodless Um, There's hardly Mm -hmm. any blood in this whole movie. And so I'm curious to hear y'all's reactions to that. You know, this is this is a film that does not um, that doesn't include as much kind of wanton um, epic destruction in terms of lots of skyscrapers falling or, you know, three airships falling down into the into the water. Um, The for the most part, the action is a lot more kind of contained. The big airport sequence, there's almost no um, there's almost no collateral damage. But I do still think that these are films that kind of want to say, hey, we're concerned about the violence we're doing, but also here's another great fight scene and here's some more kind of destruction porn. So I'm curious to hear how y'all reacted to that. To me, this just feels like a step in the right direction. And they, I completely agree with you, Brent. I can completely see the hypocrisy inherent in that. But for years, years and years, we got all of these superhero movies, all these action movies with just unabashed body counts. And... Maybe I'm seeing the glass too half full in this because I think that critique is uh, still very poignant and it still needs to be said. We still need to be pushing that direction more. But I'm just so encouraged by um, the fact that they are actually addressing this in movies because there are really good conversations to be had around – I mean it's the just war argument. It's like, okay, what do we stop? Um, What life is worth what? Like if we can save – these lives but in the process this many lives are lost is that worth it and you see these people uh wrestling with that and i don't think they come to any good conclusions but i don't think that society as a whole has come to any solid conclusions on that uh in general throughout the the history of of recorded history um i know my personal feelings on that and i know my personal ethics but I've never been in this kind of a situation. And I think seeing people thrust into that situation, really wrestling with it and not knowing what to do with it is something that I've really enjoyed seeing so much more of on screen, especially in this movie. From a filmmaking perspective, I think that's one thing that made Ant-Man so refreshing. Um, Yeah, I I didn't have very strong feelings about Ant-Man, like either good or bad. I thought it was just like, whatever, okay. But um, 
what those fight sequences were very refreshing because the body count was so low and it was on such a small scale like there were definitely mm-hmm. literally yeah, exactly <laughs> there were definitely like risks and like stakes at play but the fight sequences themselves were very contained and i it, it was fun to watch yeah, I think it just, yeah, I think it makes for more interesting action. Uh, there was, you know, there was a long stretch where it felt like so many of these summer blockbusters, ultimately what you knew was going to happen was we're going to have a scene in a metropolitan area that's going to involve a ton of skyscrapers falling down. And so, like, um, obviously both of the uh, Avengers films, the, you know, Avengers 1 and then Age of Ultron, um, ended with just intense destruction. Um, even the second Star Trek film, uh, involved like an entire spaceship crashing into a city yeah. and just bl- blasting through it. I think really kind of the the epitome of this was um, Man of Steel, in which almost oh, yeah. the entire city of Metropolis was just destroyed, and that was one of the biggest criticisms people had of that film. And so I think that, it, yeah, it's almost like we got to this really boring point in superhero films, but really more just kind of action films in general, where it felt like inevitably what audiences were going to see was going to just be the climax in which tons of stuff was destroyed. And so it's, it is really refreshing to see a movie in which they figure out a way to have great action and great action that feels like it has high stakes uh, that doesn't just involve stuff being destroyed. I am a big defender of the film uh, Superman Returns um, from, I think it was 2006, uh, which did not get great reviews, but that's a movie that has, it's pretty low on action, but the action sequences it has are not let's destroy things. One of the main action set pieces is Superman rescuing a jet. Um, and then another major set piece is um, like people trying to land a plane. And so those are sequences, not only are they not involving intense um, destruction, but they're not even really fights. There's kind of, there are a couple of fights in that movie, but they're pretty low key. They're pretty on the ground. And so I just love when, I think it, you just have more fun when directors can come up with Sequences involving high stakes, involving action that don't just involve punching people and punching buildings. And even in, you know, even in Civil War, there's this amazing chase sequence in a tunnel where you have four different characters who are kind of getting from point A to point B and like jumping on cars and jumping in and out of cars. And at one point, Bucky gets a motorcycle and it's so That was one of my favorite scenes whenever he grabs that motorcycle with his metal arm and just like... That sequence was my favorite sequence in the the film. So incredible. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. it got a big cheer in our theater. I particularly just wanted to do a quick mention about the costuming. Um, Vulture did a great, had a great piece, um, an interview with the costume designer about superhero casual wear and what, like the (laughs) the clothes that all the heroes wore when they weren't in those fight sequences. Um, Specifically, vision and like a cashmere sweater, I think was really I awesome. It. <laughs> yeah. And a lot easier on the makeup people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, I would definitely point everyone to read that Vulture article. We'll retweet it. Um, but it had just some like really interesting commentary about each character and why they wear the things they wear. I loved Wanda with her like chipped black nail polish. I thought that was such like a cool personal touch. Um, as well as everyone else's clothes in the movie, I thought were really cool. The one thing I want to mention before we close out is how much fun I had when Spider-Man made a Star Wars reference because Disney has the rights to both franchises. <laughs> I thought that was so fun when they were like, you know that really old movie? Like the whole way that they handled that was so cool. And it was just also really cool to see it play out. Like, oh, they literally did the AT-AT thing with Ant-Man just now. Um, yeah, that was such a fun moment that I realized, oh, like so many lawyers would have had to be involved in that. And now they just (laughs) made this beautiful little thing. 
<laughs> so one other comment uh, some of my favorite moments in the marvel cinematic universe um and these are rare but when they happen i think they're just so delightful is moments in which they really take into consideration the dramatic differences between these characters lifestyles and play that up for humor and so this movie gets a lot of jokes out of hawkeye kind of being like hey so at some point somebody says what are you doing and he says something like oh i'm disappointing my kids <laughs> and like yeah, just yeah. A joke that he's the only one who like is even considering like oh i've got a wife and children that right. kind of matter to me another yep. another great moment for this is uh when tony stark is meeting peter parker for the first time and Peter Parker start, kind of starts to get frustrating, and he's like, man, I was having such a good day. Like, I caught my train. I did really well on an algebra <laughs> test. And as somebody who's been living in a city for a year now relying on public transportation, I can totally get why, like, catching your train makes for a good day, and it can just kind of be, like, the highlight of a day. And so compared to someone like Tony Stark, who has, like, who knows how many cars, I just I love all those moments where you remember, like, when we all fight, we're all just superheroes in costumes, but at the end of the day, we all go home to very different places. Absolutely. I love that. I also love like Ant-Man interacting with all of these characters. Paul Rudd was like super charming as per usual. Um, <laughs> I loved like his quips with Tony and like his excitement at meeting Steve. Um, so yeah, the, all those like forces meeting each other was really fun to watch. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much. I have had way too much fun talking through Captain America Civil War. Um, let's go around and just tell... Uh, everyone listening, where they can get in touch with us online. Sandra? I'm Sandra Omstutz, and you can find me on all my social media platforms at Sandra Omstutz. My last name is spelled A-M-S-T-U-T-Z, and definitely go follow me on Snapchat. I'm Brent Bailey. You can find me online under the handle B-R-P-A-B-A. And about 10 minutes after we finish recording, you can find me at my local comic book shop for free comic book day. And I'm Lucas Wright. Um, you can follow me everywhere at Lucas and Stuff. Um, and I'd love to follow you back on Visco. Awesome. And I am Lawson Soward. Uh, feel free to give me a shout and say hey on Twitter. I'm at Lawson West. And you can follow our podcast Twitter account at Feeling It Pod. We'll be retweeting things that we talked about in the episode, as well as updates about when we are going to be on iTunes officially. As soon as we know, y'all will know. <laughs> Thanks, right. guys. Thank you. Thank you. Adios. Thank you. Goodbye now. Goodbye. Go away. I'll see you soon, okay? That's it. Go home. Yep. Moving along, Padre. Goodbye, old friend. That's it. That's our show for tonight, people. <laughs>